Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started. Hey, everybody. It's Bob again. I've got Operational Empowerment. Collaborate, innovate, and engage to beat competition. And I've got Sean Casemore with me today. Sean, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Bob. Thanks for having me. So, you know, let's just run straight into the cover here. It's got this very, very cool illustration with everybody interlinked and, and interlocked. What motivated you to do this type of cover? Uh, the cover is really supposed to identify the, I guess, the core theme of the book, which is every business, you know, and this is my bias based on my experience, but every business is, is really based on people, uh, whether it be customers themselves, the employees that work within the business, even suppliers or, or contractors that are in the marketplace that support the business. And, and that is regardless of size of business. Obviously, the larger the business, the more people are involved. So that cover is really meant to identify some of the key themes that I discuss in the book based on the uh, you know experiences I had in, in working with my clients to empower their business. And if you look at them, you know, you can see the one at the very top right there talks about, you know, ideas you know so the, the the premise and it's i think in the last uh, part four of the book where i discuss how some of the best ideas uh, relative to creativity and innovation are actually within the four walls of your business so that image for example is supposed to portray that so if you walk through it it's kind of a cycle that touches on each key area of the book you know it, it's interesting because going through the book i noticed that it is really about almost like a low-hanging fruit philosophy of business. Why should you be going out there trying to find new talent in your organization when you have it already in place and maybe it's the C-suite or the managers that aren't utilizing that talent set to, to maximize the potential? And then also uh, building and, and maximizing your pre-existing relationships with clients and suppliers instead of going out there and trying to find new suppliers and, and, and uh, new clients. So... For you, what do you think, I mean, those are three strong strategies. Which one do you think is the most powerful? Uh, to me, it's the employee piece. And, you know, I, I spent about 17 years in a corporate career working in about five different industries, uh, from automotive, pharmaceutical, uh, worked in electronics for a period of time, power generation, um, and, and and electronics actually was the fifth. But what I found, regardless of sector, regardless of companies, I mean, I've worked in some large multinational organizations right down to small family-owned businesses with, you know, 150 uh, employees in total. And what I found is regardless of the business, the industry I was in, the challenges, you know, really boil down to the same thing. And that is that every company, you know, operates with some level of or some quantity of employees. And those employees get put into holes, you know. So you think about a, a small business owner, they start up, but what do they need? Well, right away, they say, I need somebody who understands bookkeeping. So they might subcontract that out for a period of time, giving a lot of trust and confidence to this person. But as the business grows, they start to hire in people and they put them in these different functions and roles. And as that business evolves over time, what we're really doing is we put them into these functional roles. Then we bring in managers or supervisors and we're really playing into the, the management structure or the, or the management hierarchy that has been around 
uh, since the industrial ages. And, and when I went back and took a look, you know, the, the, when the industrial age really began, you know, here we have organizations with hundreds of employees and they're, and they're saying, hey, how do we manage all these people? And the only you know, organization, if we can call it that at that time, that was doing so successfully was the, the military. So they took the military approach to management and they injected it into organizations. And we still operate from that premise today in most, not all, but in most organizations. And what I found time and time again is that you, know, you walk into any company today and you'll point me to the employees that seem to be the most disengaged. And, and I'm not talking about one or two. I mean, every company has an employee or a handful of employees that just simply don't fit. But generally, if you've got a large group of people that seem to be low in morale or not that productive, when I get talking to them to understand why that is, that's usually the result of what's happened over time within the organization itself. So maybe they've had a, a leader or a boss that they didn't get along with very well or that was very directive and was always telling them what to do rather than asking them what they thought they should do. Maybe they had a lot of ideas early on and they didn't feel like anybody was listening to them or, or using those ideas and putting them into action. And so the, the problem that most organizations, again, regardless of size, are facing today is how do we get our people engaged? How do we get our employees you know, with higher morale and, and higher levels of productivity? And the whole premise of the book relative to the employee aspect is that if we start to tap into the hearts and minds of the people working for us and actually let, give them some freedom to make decisions, to become involved, to contribute to the business's direction and its philosophies, suddenly people want to participate. And that is the premise of engagement. So what I've, what I've seen happen time and time again is companies are dealing with a low engagement, um, but their approach to how to overcome that is, is completely backwards. So, I, you know, I I felt compelled based on my experience and then the experiences I've had in the last seven years uh, since I started my consulting practice, Case Moore & Co., of working with organizations to help them turn this around and, and get their employees more empowered, which has, has resulted in you know growth within the organizations, higher levels of pro profitability, and, and increased productivity. And, and after all, who doesn't want that? So I know it's a long answer to your question, but uh, it, it really did evolve from those, uh, those beginnings. Okay. So, you know, one of the things that happens, and, and I've noticed this, um, when you do have an, an empowered uh, workforce, um, the manager does less managing, but it, they still have to spend a certain amount of their time refereeing because then you're dealing with people that um, have uh, conflicting ideas, they're within the same department. So when you let people uh, do what they want, well, maybe not do what they want, but basically give them the empowerment to, to come up with ideas and, and develop and move their ideas forward, there's only so many hours in the day. And if you've got five people in a department all vying for those same hours, but they all have different ideas uh, and going in different directions... Is it then the manager's job to, to sit down with those people and say, hey, these are all fantastic ideas. How can we group these ideas and come together as a team to move them forward? And these two ideas, time-wise, aren't going to work so well, but maybe in the future we can use them. Is that the type of uh, management uh, style that's going to work better in an organization? It, it is. And you know, to, to just expand on that for a moment, Bob, the, the, how you described it, I frame it as the fact that you know, a lot of managers today, supervisors, if they've been in the role for any length of time, they, chances are they're very directive, meaning they're, they were probably strong technically in a role and, and as a result got hired in to be the supervisor with everybody crossing their fingers that that person could instill their 
talent, if you will, into other employees. But it doesn't work that way because every single employee is an individual. So we've come through an era. I mean, I'm in my early 40s now. So I've worked for bosses who are very directive. Tell me what to do. You do this, you do that. But if you think about the the evolution of the workplace, and if you think more importantly about millennials coming into the workplace and what they desire in, in a leader or in a manager, it's not that directive style. It's somebody who's what I term as more facilitative, which is exactly as you describe it. Somebody that as a leader, they're not there to tell people what to do. They're there to help people work together to come to the best conclusions and the best decisions. And that's a that's a totally different approach than what we've been used to in, in most companies. Not all. Again, I do stumble across companies that are employing these practices and, and doing very well. But it is really that different approach to leadership. And what I tell you know CEOs when I do a lot of speaking for, for Vistage and, and tech um, and other executive forums, what I tell them is, look, if you think about millennials, maybe you have kids or relatives and you think about what they desire and and how they adapt or respond to somebody telling them what to do. It's just not the way it used to be. I mean, my father, you know, I I remember I sold cars early, early in my career. And one day, unfortunately, the the owner of the dealership didn't like uh, what I'd sold the car for, the amount, although the sales manager had approved it. So when I went in to see him, he kind of let me have it. If you've worked in that industry, uh, yelling and screaming is not necessarily that uncommon. <laughs> and I went and I went home that night and I was very upset. And I said to my dad, I'm like, that's it. I've, I've had it. I can't, can't believe you had the gall, especially when the sales manager approved it, although he kept his mouth shut throughout the whole thing. And um, so my dad said, well, well, Sean, are they, you know, are they going to pay you for selling that car? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And he said, well, can you go back to work on Monday? Do you still have a job? I said, yeah, absolutely. And my dad said, well, well what's the problem? And, and that really, has, to, you know, to this day has framed for me the differences in the generations, what they're willing to tolerate, and the kind of environment they want to work in. So if, if in an organization today – You've got leaders who are more directive, as we've been describing them. You know, you you are going to have to help them transition to be more facilitative, to help that team work together. And if you say, no, I don't need to, that's fine. But you'll never be able to attract and retain millennials because that's an environment that they're accustomed to. And that's an environment they demand. And, and if you know, I mean, the studies are showing today, millennials are the or almost the top workforce in North America today. They're, I think, getting close to 40% of the workforce. So this is not something that is a suggestion. It's it's more of the, the book is written as a, as a playbook to build an organization that will help you perform better, but also indirectly help you attract and appeal the future generations that are coming into the workforce. You know, it, it's, it's interesting because the more and more I'm, um, I chat with, with authors these days, millennials seems to be uh, the new catchword. And, you know, like 10 years ago, it was branding. But I think there's a tremendous amount of focus on millennials right now. And then the next generation coming up after those. So how should C-suite be looking at their overall HR strategy because of millennials. Do you think companies over the next five to 10 years will have to restructure or uh, relearn management to encompass millennials to be competitive? Because look, at you've got two choices. You can either take the millennials on and work the way that they need to be worked with or force them to be different and then have disgruntled millennials. Um, sounds to me like you're gonna you basically you're you, you're forced to deal with millennials on their terms. Do you think that's a that's a, a bad attitude, or is it a, a bit of both? Where you take millennials in and say, look, at, you know, we we have a semi millennial attitude, uh, but we need you to be this type of millennial. Is that a, a realistic approach? 
I, I think it is. I mean, I'm not an extremist. And, I, you know, I, I, a gentleman approached me after a talk I did a few weeks ago and he said, look, Sean, like, should we really be bending over backwards for this generation? I mean, when I started my organization, this was a CEO. He said, you know, I was told what to do and I did it. I worked the extra hours. I did what I had to do. And, and I said, no, I'm not here to suggest that we need to, you know, you know, sh- turn the, the ship upside down and shake it for what it's worth. But all I say to people is use some common sense. I mean, the reality is if anybody, if you know younger generations today, they want things differently. And this is probably no different than what baby boomers were considering when Generation X was coming into the workforce. The difference was Generation X was always lower in numbers. So they didn't threaten the overall you know, uh, structure and, and, and management of businesses as baby boomers have become accustomed because we were the, the minorities. I am a Generation X. But millennials are such a large conglomerate that if you're not changing to accommodate some of these things, recognizing you're going to have other generations in the workplace, you're going to have to kind of have an intergenerational strategy, um, you know, they're going to eventually here in the next five years probably be in management positions and make the changes themselves. And maybe that's okay, but, you know, it costs so much today to attract and retain talent, you really want to make sure you're creating the right environment for them. And again, if I could give you the, the premise of all of this, the, the book itself, it's the idea that it's all about the environment. We have the environment you know, in our organizations today, regardless of sector, to really be more profitable than we really are, to have our people be more productive, but we're not approaching it in the right manner. We're, we're trying to use old approaches and old tools in many cases for folks that are younger and just no longer receptive to those approaches or those tools. Yeah, it seems to me like the uh, C-suite and upper management have to retrain themselves because there's, like you're saying, there is a major shift in the demographics that are available to them as, as tools because employees are managerial tools. Um, based on that statement that um, employees or managers' tools. Um, what do you think managers are doing wrong uh, when, you know, introducing and, and managing millennials or, or even older staff um, compared to the, the yesterday style compared to the new style? And, and we've kind of talked about the, the old styles. That you, you're told what to do. You do it. If you can't suck it up, maybe you should be going to another organization. Compared to today, where it's subtly different, but also radically different at the same time. So for you, you know, for, for managers that are having a hard time getting their head around it, what is an exercise or a path that they can take to help them move in that direction? I, I just did a talk um, maybe about a month, month and a half ago for uh, FEI, the Financial Executives International, one of their chapters. And, and here's what I said. The talk was specifically on millennials because I just find, as you said, it is a buzzword, but it's a buzzword because a lot of people, you know, a lot of people in the C-suite are saying, hey, what the heck? These people are different, right? So, you know, I did this talk and, and here's what I said to them. If you're not sure what changes you should make to your organization or your department as a result of millennials, do you have millennials now in your in your department or in your organization? And the answer is always yes. I said, well, ask them. I mean, put them into a little focus group or do a few little focus groups and have some conversations about what would they like to see change. Bring that back validate that against, you know, as you said earlier, our discussions around prioritizing. There might be some things you can do that are pretty simple and and low to no cost. There might be some more complex things. But that now you have the information right from that group as to what they'd like to see change. And if you're if that focus group or the people validating that information are from different generations, now you're ensuring you're not 
completely changing the organization to satisfy one group. So it really isn't that difficult. I mean, a lot of the work that I do in consulting is these kinds of projects where I go in and just hold some focus groups with different generations where they share with me what they'd like to see change. And from that, the organization can create this change plan or change strategy. Your earlier question about what what, what approaches should uh, the C-suite be looking at relative to their you know human resource strategy, I think what's going to happen here in the, in the in, you know, I want to say the short term, is most CEOs I know today are becoming more reliant on their HR folks, not from a, a guideline and regulation standpoint, but from a, hey, help me here. Uh, you know, how can we how can we do this? But, you know, they've got to be willing to kind of let the HR folks into the strategy, the direction of the company and to participate as such. And HR people themselves have to maybe let go of the reins from a people management standpoint and realize that CEOs and executives often want to focus more on the numbers and, you know, finding this balance. So it is really going to be, just like the book mentions, a collaborative approach here. But, you know, the, the simple starting point. Talk to some millennials in your group. Say, hey, what would you like to see change around here? What would make it so appealing that your friends would want to come work here? What should we look at changing both short term and long term? You know, back in the day, um, you know, if you're working for an organization and and the boss or the manager or whatever mentioned, you know, oh, geez, we've got a, a space coming up. He would always ask the people in that department, do you, do you have anybody you would recommend? And then you go out to your friends, hey, there's an opportunity. Why don't you come check it out? Do you think that practice is not, uh, used as much anymore and and it's been basically put on the the shoulders of HR and with Millennials maybe it should go back to something like that uh, I, I think it is still shared but I, I think again um, you know how it's shared is very different as as one point of discussion so you know today as, as you and I both know and others listening to this obviously LinkedIn is, is a great tool for attracting finding and and uh you know finding new talent um but you know if if think about yourself if you if you were 20 something and working in an organization that you loved where are you going to communicate or how are you going to communicate that you like it it's probably going to be through facebook or maybe linkedin or maybe twitter who knows uh, it's going to be more through social media because the face-to-face -face interactions are much different today than they were 20 years ago um so so how they share it is a little bit different and again if you think about what it matters to a millennial, um, you know, they're off times. And, and I take this, I, I don't, I, I, you know, just for your listeners, I want to say that I actually do a lot of work with millennials uh, directly, as well as with those trying to manage millennials. So when I speak of this stuff, it's not of my my own, you know, perceptions here. It's based on the, the facts and, and the information I've been given through my research. But, you know, if you think about the, how things have really changed and what matters to a millennial, you know, they're more concerned about the global warming than previous generations. They're more concerned about the, the impact a company has on the environment, on their community. What does the brand represent? Those things, you know, when I was 20 something, I, I probably didn't even know what a brand was. You know, all I knew is, hey, I was getting a paycheck and I was paying the bills, right? So if things really have evolved and what matters and, and the, the joke that I often tell, and, and I told this to actually a group of millennials and they chuckled. I said, you know, if things don't go well in a job, millennials are just going to move back in the basement with their parents. And, you know, if you are one of those parents, those who are listening, people usually laugh because they say, yeah, either A, it's already happened or B, if it did happen, yeah, I would let them move back in the basement because I want them to have a job they really like or love versus maybe do what I did as a baby boomer or maybe even Generation X is just take a job for the sake of having a job. So so that whole mindset is out there. So the, the challenge for the C-suite becomes, well, then again, it goes back to how do I create the environment that they want to come to and how do I get their friends soliciting 
you know, people to come work for us. And the only way I can do that is to make the people that do work for me as millennials to feel like this is a great place to work. And that goes back to starting with asking them, what would they like to see you change? Great segue. Let's dig into the book a little bit. For the busy, busy person, which is basically everybody, um, one of the questions I like to ask, if they were given the opportunity to read one section of the book, what section do you think they should read first that is going to give them the most value? Is it going to be section one, two, three, or four? Well, the book's really laid out. You know, part one is me kind of debunking what I think are some uh, some information out there that is not that valuable. And the quick example I'll give you, Bob, is operational excellence. Just like the words collaboration or talk about millennials, it's kind of a buzzword that's been floating around. And when some, you know, I go into an organization, I look at their strategy and it says, we're going to achieve operational excellence. And the first thing I say is, how much is excellence going to cost? Like that sounds pretty expensive to me. So I talk through how some of those are buzzwords and I try to focus the reader in on on the people aspect of their business. So it's really in, in part two, if somebody's interested in the employee side that we've been discussing, how do I tap into my employees? How do I involve them more? How do I gain more value from my employees to help my business? That's what part two is all about. Part three uh, specifically talks about customers. So now it's kind of external to the business. How do I tap into my customers and the marketplace, aka my suppliers or contractors, to help me build a stronger business? And then the last section is is all about how to bring creativity, new ideas, and fresh perspectives. So I think it depends on your role. If you're a leader or manager, you want to understand how do I tap into my people more? I'd focus on part two. If you're maybe more in a role relative to sales, marketing, you know, on the growth side of the business, you may find that part three relative to tapping into external resources is, is an interesting place to start as well. Now, that's what I want to touch on right now because I thought it was a brilliant uh, idea to not only be working on your internal organization, making it stronger, getting the people to do more stuff, but also reaching out and working with the people that are your suppliers. So what do you think is a, a good strategy for C-suite or, or upper management to be doing with their suppliers? How are they going to uh, reinvigor a relationship or make that relationship uh, work better for the company, make it more profitable? Bob, I'll give you a, a kind of a very tactical, simple example that anybody can apply. And it's top of mind because I just spoke on this a, a couple of weeks ago to, a, again, another CEO forum. But, you know, if you think about the key suppliers or if you're in a service-based business, maybe it's key contractors, subcontractors that support your business. You know, how often are you, number one, soliciting them for ideas to support your business? And I'll expand on that in just a moment. And number two, how often are you giving them the opportunity to provide their ideas? So as an example, would be you've got existing suppliers and you're typically managing the cost, you know, so they give you a quote, somebody's negotiating their price down, somebody's squeezing them on delivery dates and delivery charges. And, and But rarely do we sit down and realize that that supplier, whether they're a larger company than ours or a smaller company, they've got leaders in there who are highly talented. And if you were to call up a key supplier to your business, say, look, I want to share with you our strategy. I want to share with you where we're going as a company, what our vision is for the next three years. And I'd like your ideas and input as to what you think we should be looking at. And let's even discuss how you might help us get there. The, the, you know, that supplier, in my experience, and I did work in supply chain for a period of time, they would trip over themselves to get the plane ticket to come see you. Now, if they're a large conglomerate, it may be a little slower paced, but they are going to come see you. 
And they're probably going to bring some high-powered, a.k.a. highly intelligent people. And keep in mind, they're probably dealing with similar challenges to you and your business. So you can sit down and have an open dialogue with them because they're going to come to see you because they think it's a chance to sell more business. And, and maybe it will be, but maybe it won't be. And you'll have a chance to have an open dialogue and gain a lot of great ideas. One of the organizations I, I used to work uh, for, actually, when I was early in my career, every year we'd have a supplier conference. We'd invite the top suppliers out. We'd uh, do a golf day. Uh, the, the, what they would pay, all it would do is cover expenses and anything additional was sent to a charity, a new charity every year. But what we would do before that golf day is we'd put them in non, in different rooms where there were non-compete, so there was no conflicting information. And we'd share with them one or two of the objectives and have them, working with some of our own employees, brainstorm ideas on how we could get there. And if that involved them, great. If not, that's fine too. So we're really tapping into their knowledge experience, both internally as well as in the marketplace. And too many organizations today are, are focused on getting rid of suppliers or squeezing suppliers. I think having worked in supply chain, that the good news is that you know, with that role of supply chain management, it has grown in popularity, but it's also grown in power, and that can be good and bad. So you know, there's a lot of ideas in part three about exactly what you can do to tap into this market or marketplace, if you will, that rarely do we realize the power that exists and rarely do we actually try and tap into. Yeah, and, and you know, a lot of those things you were talking about is like building the relationship. And if you have a strong trust-driven relationship, you can move a lot quicker as you evolve in an organization or as you are actually uh, moved up in the organization. What is the best way to evolve? Well, I guess a couple of things come to mind, Bob. Uh, you know, I've made that shift in my corporate career, as I'm sure you have and, and other listeners. The challenge becomes when we make a shift, we get... Um, uh, promoted to another role, maybe another department, another area of the business, we often forget um, what it was like to be in our previous role. So, you know, you, you think about the the cliche, the guy that's um, you know, maybe driving that truck or maybe he's on front counter doing customer service and all of a sudden he's sales manager one day and he walks in, now he's wearing a shirt and a suit and a briefcase and he's reporting to the, the CEO or the executive VP of sales and, and you know, his whole you know, reporting structure, communication level, responsibility, all that's changed. And so as that's changed, people, generally speaking, you know, if they're able to progress in that manner, will take on new levels of authority, new levels of responsibility. But what that can often happen is that they lose touch with the way things really are. You know, I, I just worked with a client not that long ago where the, the CEO who built the business uh, over 20 years, um, you know, he, he's still involved in the business you know, today as far as what's happening. But, you know, he challenges his people and how long it takes to do certain things. And I said to him, you know, let me ask you a question. When, when you were actually doing this yourself and you started this business 20 years ago and you were hands-on, do you realize how much has changed? I mean, look at the structure, look at the size, look at the complexity of what you're doing for your customers. Would you agree it's very different than when you were doing it? And he said, absolutely. I said, well, then why are you constantly challenging people that you've hired, that you've invested money in, that you believe are strong people? By you stepping in and challenging them, you're really demoralizing them and training them not to speak up, not to participate, not to, not to add value and ideas because you're going to shut them down and tell them you know the way it is. So, you know, that CEO is creating his own environment. And so to me, it, the shift that we have to keep in mind is where we came from and what it really means 
to be in the front lines of the business. You know, I, I wrote in the in the book an example where, and I'll give you two opposing examples. First off, an organization I was asked to come into, they said they had a low morale problem and engagement problem. And as I walked around and talked, this is a large organization with about a thousand people. As I talked to different people to understand what's going on, I started to notice a theme. And here's what it was. They said the CEO that had come in maybe five years prior used to come out on the floor at any time, not you know, randomly, and just gather a bunch of people around and have a conversation. How are things going? What's new? How can I help? And then they would find that he would do things you know, that would trickle back. He'd get them new tools. He'd get them different shifts. I mean, whatever it was, he would help them to get what they wanted. All of a sudden, he stopped doing that. And the comment that come up time and time again is, oh, they don't care about us down here anymore. The CEO used to come out and talk to us. He doesn't do that anymore. And, you know, so to me, that's the underlying issue. It's, it's not all this other stuff. And people really feel the front lines that they're having a hard time, uh, you know, it, because as time goes on in every business, things do become more complex and more difficult. They never become simpler, right? There's more, there's more process. There's more technology to use. And, and so we become disconnected as people who are progressing. So I, I won't share the second example, but what I do want to reinforce here, Bob, is that we can never forget to where we came from. And the most successful leaders that I've ever met, and this takes a, a, a you know kind of a note from that story I was going to tell you, are those that still go back and connect with people at the front lines, whether that's a CEO that does a quarterly talk to the entire facility. I just had a gentleman a couple of weeks ago that says they have 70 facilities and every executive is expected to show up at least once per year to have a talk with the employees at each one of those facilities. And that's a dialogue. That's not just a speech and tell you how things are. That's a, here's what I'm seeing. What are you seeing? How can I help? So regardless of your level, never lose touch with the front line because things aren't as easy down there as you might think they are. And I think it gives you your, your C-suite or upper management a huge tactical advantage over their competition because they actually know where the pain points are. The people that are at the front line, they know where the problems are because they're exposed to it every day, especially in a customer service situation. So they can bring that up at the C-suite meetings and say, hey, you know, I'm seeing a pattern, anybody else seeing it? And they can be having these intelligent, informed discussions and you know, the the worst thing that can happen with an organization is you have a disconnected C-suite that still get together as a C-suite and just talk BS. It's like, oh, I think this is going to happen. And they're just assuming stuff based on uh, something they've heard from somebody else or something they've read in a magazine. But they're not actually connected with the most important source of information, which is their people around them. Yeah, and, and I just want to add, Bob, because building on your point, what I tell CEOs, you know, is if you think about it, every organization has what I call duds, right? These are people that just don't fit in, aren't happy, whatever the case is. And over time, they probably won't be there. But we have to operate from the basic premise that the majority of people have a brain and want to use it. And if they, if we find in an organization that they predominantly don't, that's not an employee issue. That's a management or leader issue. For some reason, they've been trained to believe that they should not use their brain. They should not participate. So if we operate from the basic function that people want to help and they want to contribute, it really changes our perspective about the people on the front line to realize that, oh, maybe things are more difficult. Maybe I should find out why by talking to the people on a regular basis and see if I can actually help them. You know, that's interesting because it, it reminds me of uh, a manager was having a real hard time with uh, a couple of people. And the reason was is that those people had run their own small businesses, like, you know, solopreneur, and, and they'd done that, but they were doing a great job and things were doing so great. So they 
stopped that little business and, and started working for a company again. But because they had been basically the whole organization and they were responsible for 100% of things, they had a heck of a time dealing with everybody in the organization because they were coming, they came in and they were going like a bat out of hell. Things weren't moving fast enough. They were getting frustrated. And the manager sat down and, and chatted with them and basically figured it out. So what he had to tell those guys is like, look, this is a this is a, a collaborative thing. And it, it may be, in your eyes, less efficient. But we all work together doing our little part. And you have to share the glory and you have to also share the responsibilities. And that's a huge thing. There, there's so many people out there that have been unemployed the last, you know, eight or nine years. And they have been basically their own managers. They, they've hustled and, and made by, um, you know, may do and survive. But now they're hired by a company. They have to basically uh, learn how to work as a, in a group again, because they basically had all the responsibility on their shoulders. And, and it's a hard thing to do. Uh, and when they were working, they said, God, if only I had a team. If only I was working with people, it would be a lot easier. But then they get back and they realize, wow, it's just as difficult, but in a different way. It is. And, and if you, you know, we talked a lot earlier about millennials, but, you know, think about the organizational dynamics in most businesses. So you've got different generations. We talked about that. You've got folks that have maybe been in their own business or maybe led a, a business. I mean, I have a client who they've got people on the production floor. This is a large food processing business who have come from overseas from different countries. And in those countries, they've been dentists and doctors. And they said, man, you know, trying to get these people to even listen to us because they feel their education puts them above us. The problem is when they came into this country, that education wasn't necessarily honored. So, you know, all of these things are happening in, in organizations of all sizes. It's not just one thing. But the, in my book, Operational Empowerment, I go through the different strategies and approaches that either I've used with clients or some companies have used on their own that I studied in preparation for writing the book in order to really tap into all of those people. You know, you'd be shocked when you go out into some large organizations at the level of education and experience of some of the people on the front lines. And yet oftentimes those up in the C-suite don't even know because they're not part of that day-in, day-out hiring. So if you've got all this knowledge sitting there, I mean, why aren't we tapping into it? Stop relying on a, a manager of a supervisor of a, a, a leader or a team leader to who, who actually add, end, end up being filters of information that come from the front lines, right? Get out there, have interactions with them, learn about your people, and, and give them some of the challenges that you're facing in the business and let them help you solve them because they will. Let's talk a little bit about your aha moment. I mean, for all authors, you know, they've got a, a huge amount of knowledge and then they decide, you know what, I'm going to write a book. And they sit down, they start researching, they start writing the book. During that process, they will have multiple aha moments or at least one. For you, what was your aha moment where, where something crystallized and you said, wow, okay, I totally get that now? I think a couple things that come to mind, Bob. First off, um, and I think I've mentioned this one before, but the idea that engagement cannot exist without empowerment. Empowerment is the precursor to engagement. You you can't have engagement if your people aren't empowered. And and that came you know, just kind of I realized that as I was writing the book, and although I have done lots of work in this area, but the more companies I studied, even in preparation for the book, you realized all these people were empowered first 
which means people started to feel like they were appreciated, which means they started to become engaged. They actually wanted to show up and, you know, for work rather than just, you know, walk into work and put in their time. So that was the first. I think the second one, um, and this may be, and I'm, I'm sharing it here first, but it's, it may be the idea for my next book, but it's really how your employees connect with your, um, the customers. And ultimately, in that connection that's made, I mean, it really is your employees that make or break the customers and, and the business, right? And it's it's based on individual discussions and individual transactions. So if you're, for example, you might have the best salesperson in the world and they can go and sell a large account, but that account can be killed, uh, you know, sorry to use the direct language, but it can be killed because somebody in customer service doesn't get along with the person on the other side of the phone or you know, you're delivering something and the truck driver screws it up or somebody produces a poor quality component. I mean, it, it can come down to one simple instance. So do your employees really connect with the customer and understand the value that they add and the impact they can have? That was really the second aha moment. And I guess the third was ultimately about innovation that, you know, there's so much talk about innovation today. And so many people, myself included, I discuss, you know, the Disney approach to innovation, but I break it down to be simple. Innovation is really creativity in motion. I mean, it's, it's new ideas that are put into practice and the companies that are most well known for it. If we break down into the simplest formulas to what they're doing, they're tapping into their people, their customers and their their suppliers, their external marketplace, to help them generate these new ideas. I share in the book, you know, Procter and Gamble. I think their their platform has been around for some time. is called Connect and Develop, and that's where they're soliciting the marketplace. You can go to this website as you can either be an inventor with you know in your basement or a large organization, but you could submit your ideas. And I've had several folks approach me and say they've worked with Procter and Gamble. It's been a great experience, and Connect and Development learns. So there's a massive company soliciting any. They don't filter. They don't care who you are. If you've got the next best thing for Procter & Gamble, bring it on and, and we're going to work with you if we think it's a value. And they do it. So, you know, innovation itself is not as complex. It's not going to take technology to bring it forward. It's going to take collaboration with those three parties I mentioned. Implementing empowerment, one of the things I find fascinating is the inability for an organization to actually implement empowerment because their concept of how it's implemented is actually counterproductive. So what do you think is the best strategy for empowerment? I think the first and foremost, as we've discussed, is you have to look at your, your leadership within the organization. I mean, if you've got a lot of leaders that I'll go back to my previous definition that are directive, that are old school that are wanting to tell people what to do or they're strong technically but they don't work well with people and there are a lot of those leaders out there that's that's step one you have to change that because it's those leaders whether they're supervisors or managers or even executives they have to facilitate this environment that we've been discussing where people have the chance to work together and to collaborate you know a client of mine you know we were doing some work around collaboration and working with cross-functional groups to identify areas of improvement for the business and one of the things I said is we're always going into your board Boardroom and putting up notes on the wall and sharing ideas, but then we have to clean it all up and put it away. Wouldn't it be nice if we had a room where people could go do this? So the president actually removed herself from her office and made that what she called, I thought it was fantastic, a collaboratorium. And it's a room now where employees are you know, enticed to go and share ideas and put them up on the wall and discuss with each other. And, and people are doing that on their own. So you know, I think it, it comes back to when we're thinking about our people and our employees, we have to have leaders that are willing to create these environments and facilitate these environments, which good news and bad news. You know, the training industry in North America is a 60, and I'm pretty sure I got this correct, $60 billion a year as an industry. 
so the good news is this, you know, this is good for them. They can develop new training materials. Uh, bad news for us is all the training that we've been investing in, or at least some of it, may not have resulted in the outcomes we desired because there's not been a lot of leadership training and collaboration. It's been how do you coach? How do you give feedback, right? How should you assess people? Um, and, and that's all of value, but it really only scratches the surface as far as what collaboration, how you, how you bring collaboration about and how you ultimately get the value from it that you should. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about, because you mentioned it before, empowering by giving people the authority to uh, go above and beyond customer service or, or, or above and beyond the call. And I think that, once again, it goes back to um, management where they don't realize that if people have to go up the chain of command to get permission to give somebody a discount or give somebody uh, some special service, and by the time it comes back down, back down, it's too late. It has to happen instantly. And, and I had an experience with Amazon where I had a product that wasn't delivered on time. It was during Christmas. I called them up and said, look, I'm really disappointed. I need this in a couple of days. I ordered it, and now they say they don't have it, blah, blah, blah. So they said, well, no problem. Um, give us the order number. I gave her the order number. And then she just said, without asking, she said, okay, um, first thing I've done is I've discounted you. I've given you your money back, so you don't have to pay. Number two is I've reordered it, and I've basically given you permission to have one-day delivery. So just reorder the unit, and um, it will be delivered to your place within one day. And I hope that uh, satisfies you. Now, that blew my mind. It was a $12 item, and they're delivering, probably cost them 30 or $40 to deliver that $12 item in one day. But think of the power that they have over me as a consumer. If companies operated this way, I mean, with limit, within limitations, I think they would have much happier uh, customers. They would also have much happy, happier people that they're doing supply work with. So I wanted to ask you, is that part of the empowerment formula where you actually give people uh, the authority to go above and beyond? Well, it is. And, and I think that when you shared that example, I mean, it, it makes me think of some recent uh, interactions I've had with Rogers. And, um, you know, you, you call, you're looking for something. And, and I think a lot of their initial uh, folks that answer the phone actually are, you know, just working from scripts and are limited in information that they have access to. But it seems like if you want anything outside of what you can do in their website, such as buy more services, uh, it has to be escalated. And it's a frustrating thing because escalation, you have to ask for escalation, you have to be put on hold again. It just takes a lot of time. Unfortunately, I think a lot of organizations, when they think about empowering their employees to, to make decisions and respond to customer needs, just like the example you gave, Bob, or look at you know Ritz-Carlton. Uh, last I heard, and I don't think it's changed, every employee at Ritz-Carlton has a budget and I want to say it's upwards of $2,000 to solve a customer issue on the spot. They don't have to go escalate the issue. And who do you know that's had a horrible experience at the Ritz-Carlton? There's not too many people. But this, when you think about that whole philosophy of giving back money and, and allowing people to make this decision on their own, there's risk to that. There's risk if your people don't know what to do, if they haven't been educated, if they haven't been given the right tools and resources. And see, a lot of organizations today, you've got two main investors, right? You've got angel investors or financial investors in the business who would say, heck no, because now you're putting my investment at risk. You're not going to do that. Um, or you've got maybe a, a privately held company where it's the CEO or the family that owns it. And again, depending on that family's philosophy, they may or may not say, heck no, you can't give away money like that. So 
but if you look at the way people are today, we've all become accustomed to getting what we want when we want it. And, and we become frustrated when that's not the case. So I, I think companies have to come to grips with the fact that to service their customers, they have to empower their employees, meaning give them the tools, the resources, even the authority to make decisions in support of the customers with obviously some constraints but allowing them to deal with customer issues in a timely manner at the point at which they happen. Because if you don't do that, you're simply frustrating the customers that you have. You know, I, I think um, this is my own personal opinion. So, you know, uh, letters of, of discontent, I guess, can be sent to me, not you, Bob. But, you know, <laughs> if, if you think about the CRTC, I know nothing about them. But I, I do know that they ensure that Canada only has, a, you know, a small handful of telecommunications providers. But I am 110% confident if those regulations are restricted were lifted and anybody and everybody could easily pop into the Canadian market, we'd have a very different uh, response from some of the, the uh, larger companies that we're dealing with telecommunications today because there'd be competition and they can no longer treat it like a numbers business. It becomes a people business. That person on the phone might have dealt with 150 calls uh, similar to yours that day, but in that very moment, they were focused on you, not on getting to the next call, not on hitting a certain number as far as minutes per call. Right? And that's a whole different approach, but it requires, again, we set our employees up for success and give them the authority to make decisions on their own. Yeah, it's interesting because actually that is happening in Canada with, um, you know, Wave. Um, I switch you over to them. And one of the biggest things I notice uh, working with this organization is that it's easy to log on to the online website. I mean, really easy compared to all the other providers, which isn't even part of the service. And then I can look at my minutes. I can change anything to do with my account. I can pay my account. I can do all this stuff very easily and very graphically friendly, where if you go into any of the other providers, it's just this nightmare. So there's a major disconnect with the corporate structure and then the, these up-and-coming um, organizations that kind of get the philosophy of what people want. And what people want is all the information 24-7. Um, and to... <laughs> And until organization can realize that and build it into their interface, really, they're, they're just shooting themselves in the foot all the time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, I'm just thinking here as we're, as we're talking, I, I sent a copy of my book to uh, Guy Lawrence, the CEO of uh, Rogers Communications, and I said, sent him a note with it and said, look, we need to talk. Um, and, and I... Uh, I, I called him on the date I said I would call, and I, you know, not surprisingly, I couldn't reach him. But uh, if he does hear this, I think we should talk because I have a lot of ideas on how he can, you know, create this better environment regardless of the the structures or restrictions that he's in. Because I agree with you, there there is slowly new competition coming into that marketplace in Canada. I mean, albeit very slowly, but they will and are changing the face of what customers expect. You know, the, to me, that whole sector reminds me of growing up, you know, I don't know about you, Bob, but uh, I remember going to a bank and if I wanted my money, I had to be there between 9 and noon or 1 and 4, Monday to Friday only. And if I wasn't there at that time, I didn't get my money. And I just stand in line and wait for it while I was there. And to me, that seems absolutely ludicrous today. And banks have been forced to make dramatic changes, being open on weekends and evenings and online banking and all these tools to allow people to get access to their money. I, I think other industries have avoided that kind of dramatic change. But I mean, it's coming. It might be now, it might be in the next several years, but people have been programmed 
to have higher expectations and less tolerance than they've ever had before, which is why it's necessary that we connect our employees, each and every one of them, with the impact they have on the customer and how they can, in fact, make a better customer experience, which in turn helps the company and helps that employee. And that's exactly what I talk about in that part three uh, in the book, Operational Empowerment. What should people do, other than buying the book, obviously, to move forward today to start more operational empowerment in their organization? Well, I think the simplest idea is that, again, I discuss in the book, but you can easily do this. If you're in a C-suite and executive position, even if you're in a managerial position and you aren't dealing with the frontline employees every single day or, or on a frequent basis, find time to go see them. You know, I know a CFO who has moved, in, moved into a COO role, so now he's got dual roles, and, and he's scheduled time. Every quarter, he visits, I think it's five or six different facilities and just does kind of a, you know, a fireside talk, if you will, with the employees, right? Dialogue back and forth. That's going to yield a lot of insights uh, relative to what's really going on in the business and where the challenges might actually exist. So, I mean, that would be a simple approach. We've talked about the leadership approach. You know, that's a little more complex and there may be some cost behind that. But I would say if you are hiring new leaders or promoting, realize that technical skill it is important, but you know I can teach anybody new skills. I can't teach somebody to be a good fit within the team. So when we're hiring people, especially for leadership roles, we need to make sure we're hiring people that have strengths relative to people. They know how to, to work with others, to identify different styles of people, to accommodate those styles, but still get the job done. Don't worry about the people that have the, the strong technical skills as much as we maybe have in the past. That'd be the second thing that I would do. And I think the third is if you do have suppliers or contractors to some degree for the business, you know, solicit even the top few uh, once a year. Bring them, take them out for dinner, bring them in for a half day session and share with them the vision of the company. Just ask them, hey, I'm happy to provide you more business if you can help me get here. I'd like your input and ideas on these objectives and goals. And again, I'll, I'll give you, you know, 10 to 1 chance they will come in and they'd be happy to help you. And other than maybe some lunch, and some cheese and crackers is not going to cost you a dime. <laughs> We've been talking with Sean Casemore. Operational empowerment, collaborate, innovate, and engage to beat the competition. Awesome book. Highly recommend it. Sean, thanks for coming on the show. Bob, thanks so much for having me. It's been a blast. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash Business Book Talk. Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlic. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week.